0: Welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play, our game. All right. Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. Wendell Wallace! And Wendell's World is Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. We got the NBA All Star break upon us. We got also the Georgetown Hoyas playing on Saturday. I'm going to be giving you my thoughts and opinions about my favorite team, the team that I love the most, the Georgetown Hoyas, and why I am so proud. So doggone proud of this team, and it's why it's one of my favorite teams of all times so of me watching Georgetown. And that goes all the way back to the late '70s, early '80s, with John Thompson Jr. and John Bebe Durham and Eric Sky Shelton and all those guys. Why, again? Why I'm going to tell you why this team, while they're 14 and 10, and while they're on the outside looking into the NCAA tournament, is one of my all-time favorite teams to root for. Love those guys, especially after what they've been through and what they did. This past three games against DePaul, St. John's, and Seton Hall. But before we get into the basketball section of the podcast, let's talk about the UFC 247. Let's talk about John Jones beating Dominic Reyes by unanimous decision to retain the UFC light heavyweight title. The scores were 48-47, 48-47, 49-46. Of course, it came down to rounds four and five. Jones was clearly... The victor of those four rounds, or excuse me, of those two rounds, he outlanded Reyes forty-six to thirty-four on significant strikes. Now, me, myself, and I, I had Reyes winning this fight. I had a split decision. I thought Reyes won rounds one, two, and three, and I thought Jones won four and five. I clearly thought that there was no mistaking that Jones won four won rounds four and five, and Reyes won rounds one and two. Three was the only one in question. So I said, while I give round three at the time when I was watching the fight, while I said I'll give round three to Reyes. It wouldn't surprise me if one of the judges or two of the judges or even all three of the judges scored that round for John Jones. So, man, let's just talk about this right now because for the first time in a long time, maybe, no, 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 not not the first time in a long time. The first time in his career, the subject has been broached. The opinion has been brought up. The discussion has been made. Have we seen the best of John Jones? Is John Jones now mortal? Is John Jones now beatable? What is the question of that? The answer after this fight with Dominic Reyes is yes. And yes. Wow. How about that? You know, this fight kind of reminded me of the uh, Felix Trinidad-Oscar De La Hoya fight back in 1999. The reason why I say that is because Reyes clearly through the first three rounds I thought was winning the fight and then I didn't say, I wouldn't say that Reyes took his foot off the pedal like De La Hoya did after winning the first seven or eight rounds I thought in my opinion against Felix Trinidad, but... Reyes kind of started to slow down midway through round three. Started to slow down really through round two, and by round four, he was completely done in terms of him being competitive and winning those rounds. So Jones caught him in round five. Jones was dominant, and because of that, he won the championship or he retained the championship, bringing it back to the. Comparison that I had with the De La Hoya-Trinidad fight back in 1999, where Trinidad won the fight by a majority decision, De La Hoya was winning the fight by a good margin going into the championship rounds, but because his corner told him that he was winning and there's no need for him to win the last couple of rounds because De La Hoya felt the power of Trinidad and said to hell with this I'm not going to get into that type of fight that started running around the ring and the phrase Chicken J La Hoya came to fruition or maybe it was just because Trinidad having the promoter named Bob Arum in his corner to where even though he was dominant in 9, 10, 11, and 12 it didn't knock him down didn't knock him out he did just enough in terms of the dominant factor to overcome his slow start in the rounds that he lost the 9, championship rounds in that fight with De La Hoya, and that was the reason why he won the fight the same thing i think with dominic reyes john jones had a lot of going for him there was a lot of things at stake for john jones in terms of usc records and other things going forward i thought that dominic reyes uh started off strong but wasn't because of so much being scared or scared it was just a matter of him running out of gas i don't think his corner in any way shape or form was talking about you have a 3-0 lead all you have to do is survive don't get knocked out. Don't have a 10-8 round, and you'll win this championship. I don't think this. I don't think this corner told him that at all. But it was just a matter of the fight was too close going into round five, to where Jones had a dominant championship round, and you give the championship to the champion who comes on strong. John Jones is the champion. John Jones is the immortal. John Jones is the greatest MMA fighter of all time, and because of that, I thought that John Jones uh, did enough in the judge's eyes to where I don't think this was some type of like, I can't believe it. This is ridiculous. This is unbelievable. This is Matt Hamble versus, this is Matt Hamble at UFC 75 versus, uh, Michael Bisbane type of robbery. So I had Reyes winning. I had him winning by a split decision, but I was not at all surprised or upset or confused or perplexed about John Jones retaining his championship. And, uh, like again, you take a look at the significance of the win for Jones. He became the winningest fighter in title belts, surpassing my main man, George St. Pierre. He extended his unbeaten streak streak to 18. He tied Demetrius Johnson for the most title defenses with 11. And he's still regarded as the best pound-for-pound fighter in the world right there with Khabib and Nurmagomedov. So, what I've been learning now, because we're moving into a new phase, and I think With boxers, and I think with fighters, with MMA fighters, and really, when you take a look, the examples of boxing is so much more. There's so many more examples because the length of the sport compared to MMA, but what we're seeing John Jones doing right now in terms of starting to slow down a little bit as far as physically is concerned. He's starting to change his style a little bit more. Now we're starting to see a more strategic John Jones when he gets into the octagon and starts fighting. Now we're starting to see a more thinking man John Jones when he gets into the octagon and starts fighting. To me he's bringing out the to me he's bringing out the Lennox Lewis. He's bringing out the Emmanuel Stewart. He's bringing out the George St. Pierre of fighting. He's bringing out the Demetrius Johnson of fighting, which is saying that, you know what, I'm going to do what I have to do to win. And whether I win 50 to 45 or whether I win 48, 47, a win is a win. He's bringing out the same philosophy that Tyron Woodley has in terms of, man, I'm not going to be out here trying to score a a, a knockout of the night or a fight of the night type of performance. I'm going to do what I need to do to win the fight. And if that means it's going to be boring, if that means that the fans don't agree with it, well. The, the hell with them, because I'm going to do what I have to do. And I think he used that philosophy in his last couple of fights when we're speaking about him fighting Tiago Santos and now Dominic Reyes. Tiago Santos, if you re- even really think about it, as far as the scoring was concerned, that was a more closer, more contested fight than he had against Dominic Reyes. At least one of the judges gave Santos around, gave him the fight. And this was a guy who was, walking around and fighting on a bad knee. So, again, I've just learned by watching these fighters, these guys all adapt. All the great fighters adapt. Muhammad Ali adapted as far as he got older, especially when you're speaking about John Jones coming off a 17-month unwanted vacation from the sport. I mean, this is a guy who now is going to be facing a new generation of fighters. He's going to be facing... Fighters now who, as far as physically is concerned, is more up to his stature in terms of the reach, in terms of the height, in terms of the physical presence. When he was fighting guys like, say, for instance, Daniel Cormier and Shogun Hua and Rashad Evans and Leota Machida and Vitor Belfort and Rampage Jackson and Glover Teixeira, Jones had a tremendous physical advantage just in terms of height, just in terms of reach. I mean here's a guy John Jones was speaking about a guy who stands six feet four and has a reach of eighty four inches. Now, when you see him fighting a guy like Daniel Cormier, who's five foot eleven, when you see a guy in John Jones fighting Shogun Hua, who was standing six feet one, or Rashad Evans, who stood six uh, five foot eleven. In fact he still stands five foot eleven. I don't think he's gotten old enough yet to start shrinking to five ten, five nine and such. Leona Machida was six one, Vitor Belfort six feet, rampage, Six foot one Glover Teixeira, who at the time was considered a big light heavyweight, he stood six two. Now, when Jones is coming back to fight these guys, the fighters that he fought since his quote unquote exile from the sport for a a year and a half Gufterson, the first fight back from his exile, his six foot five with a 79 inch reach. Then he fought Anthony Smith, who's six foot four with a 76 inch reach. Then he fought Tiago Santos, who's six foot two with a 76 inch reach. And then Dominic Reyes. He's six foot four with a 77-inch reach. Dominic Reyes is a guy who was a collegiate athlete. So the new type of fighter that John Jones is facing now in his second phase of his career, this is something where he's not going to be able to physically overpower. This is a guy who's not going to be, who has to take less chances, who has to be a little bit more, more cognizant of taking chances and going for broke because the fighters that he's fighting, he doesn't have that physical advantage as much as he did the first time when he was when he was building his resume as the greatest fighter and most definitely the greatest light heavyweight fighter in MMA history. So, yeah, it's going to be something a little bit different. And as I mentioned before, I named those names in terms of who Jones is, I don't know if Jones is, quote unquote, patterning his style after. But when you take a look at what, what was Emmanuel Stewart all about, especially with Lennox Lewis, the heavyweight champion of the world for a long time, what was his deal? Hey man, keep it simple. Don't do anything stupid. This is working. You keep doing what you're what you're doing. The hell with the crowd. The hell with the booing. The hell with the fact that you're not not knocking anybody out. The hell with the fact that you're not quote unquote putting on a gutsy ball to the wall Ali versus Frazier third thriller vanilla type you know the thriller and Manila type fight. Just worry about winning the fight, which means stick that jab in his face and then grab onto him when he gets a little bit too close. And that's the same thing with Dominique uh, Demetrius Johnson. Demetrius Johnson, I remember a long time ago reading an article about Demetrius Johnson. He was sitting there talking about, man, I had this fight early on in my career when I first started for the UFC. And I came out there, you know, we were both swinging for each other and we were getting some heavy shots. And I remember sitting in the back, I had a broken nose and my face was all bloodied and I was feeling all this type of pain. And the guy next to me was feeling the same way. Demetrius Johnson had won the fight, but he was sitting up there in the locker room and he was in pain and all this kind of stuff. And he got the word that, wait a minute, the fighter of the, the fight of the night and the bonuses, we didn't get any bonuses. So I put myself through this hell, I, I'm big, my nose got broke, my jaws all messed up, my eyes just you know, When I wake up tomorrow, I'm going to be in so much pain, my hands are going to be hurting, my wrists are going to be hurting, my shoulders are going to be hurting, my legs are going to be hurting, my jaws going to be hurting, everything about me is going to be hurting for the next week or two. I put myself through all that bullshit and I didn't even get a bonus? I didn't get a fight of the night bonus or anything like that? Well shit, the hell if I am going to be doing this nonsense again? Let me see what I can do about just winning fights. And Demetrius Johnson turned into, arguably, the top three, top four all-time fighter in MMA history. So, again, John Jones, I think, is saying the same thing. Hey, man, I'm don't, I'm not i not going to go in there balls to the wall swinging and trying to do all this crazy stuff against guys like Dominic Reyes, guys like Tiago, Tiago Santos, guys like Anthony Smith, uh, these other guys who are coming up because guess what? I don't have the same physical advantage that I did when I was fighting these other guys who are a lot less physical in terms of their stature than I am. Tyron Woodley said it best. I remember when he was fighting Damian Maia when he was the welterweight champion of the world. And it was a boring fight just like he had against Stevie Boy Thompson and some others. And he came into the fifth round and he was doing the same thing. And as far as the wrestling is concerned and the crowd was booing. And I remember him being on the Luke Thomas show or Ariel Hawani. Or one of these shows, and you know Luke Thomas was like, man, you know what? You're getting a lot of criticism, Tyron, for the way that uh, you fought round five, the fact that you were the champion and you didn't go for it and you didn't try to finish the deal and you won the first four rounds clearly and why didn't you try to knock him out or anything like that? And Tyron Woodley was like, okay, for all these idiots who are sitting up there talking about I should have gone for a knockout or I should have gone for something crazy or I should have gone for some unbelievable type submission, I won the fight 50 to 45, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Okay, so I won the first four rounds very easily doing what I was doing. So the only way that Damian Maya could have won the fight and won the welterweight championship was for me to get careless, was for me to go out and try to go for the knockout. Is that correct? So why would I change what I was doing if I won the first four rounds and I won the first four rounds easily? Why would I just keep doing what I was doing in round five is after one, two, three, and four of those rounds, I won easily. And it makes sense. So again, I'm only mentioning these examples because I think that's the type of arc that we're seeing John Jones take his career. That's the type of path that John Jones is taking his career right now. I don't think the highlight knockouts, or not knockouts, but I don't think the highlights Fights that Jones had, for instance, dropping Machida like a sack of potatoes after he choked him out, or the kick that knocked out um, uh, Daniel Cormier, or the beatdown that he had on Shogun Hua, or the submission that he had on Rampage, or the one-sided beatdown that he gave Rashad Evans and Glover Teixeira. I don't. I, I think those types of performances for John Jones, those type of dominant, awe dropping, jaw dropping performances by John Jones, I think those are over. The man is 32 years old. The man has now moved into a different phase of his career. I'm not saying that because of that, John Jones all of a sudden needs to be falling from the pound for pound list. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that now I think we have to get used to a new way of John Jones. I was sitting up there watching the fight, and I was just like, why is he? I, I was watching the John Jones that I saw when he was fighting. Daniel Cormier, or when he was fighting Shogun Hua, or when he was fighting Vidor Belfort, or when he was fighting uh, Leona Machida. I was waiting for that fighter to emerge. And I think you were too. Where's that John Jones? Where's that guy? What is he doing? What's going on here? I remember the discussion that people had after the Anthony Smith, or yeah, the uh, Tiago Santos fight was what's up with John Jones? Was he just coasting, or was he just. Didn't take him seriously, or is he bored, or he just doesn't care anymore? What's up with this? Because again, we were expecting the John Jones to come in and to dominate like he did the first part of his career. What's going on with this kind of stuff? We were expecting the John Jones that beat up Daniel Cormier not once but twice, dominating him not once but twice. So we were looking for that John Jones and we didn't see him. I think this is the John Jones now that's going to be presented to us moving forward, and that's why I say. The thoughts of John Jones moving to heavyweight, no, 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 no. There's no need for him to fight Stipe Miocic. There's no need for him to fight Francis Ngannou. No, no. Do I think John Jones could be a legitimate heavyweight contender? Yeah, I think so. I think that he could beat up the junior Dos Santos of the world. I think that he, as far as heavyweights ranked number three or four or five and down, I think John Jones would be successful against them. But do I think John Jones could beat Stephen Miosic? No. Do I think John Jones could beat Francis Ngannou? No. If John Jones had a hard time keeping Dominic Reyes down when he put him down, what is he going to do against Ngannou? What is he going to do against Derek Lewis, who I think he could be competitive against, but that that would be a tougher fight, I think, than most people would think, especially if Derek Lewis got himself in shape and got serious for that fight. But what would he do against Miosic? What would he do against Ngannou? Those are the two... Fighters that I think people if John Jones is going to move up to the heavyweight division I think the 205 will always be there for Jones in terms of where he's going to be Staking his claim where he's going to be finishing off his career I don't think John Jones is going to become a full-time heavyweight But I think as far as super fights are concerned I think there's been talk and there has been talk and there's been some yearning And there's been some desire for John Jones to move up and fight Stipe Miocic I say no fucking way I say stay down here do the immediate rematch with Dominic Reyes. This is something that you got to take care of there, John. This is something where you have to rectify. Because again, I think people are still in the mold of John Jones, of being that guy who we saw when he was 23, 24, 25 years old. John Jones, that John Jones isn't coming back. Those dominant performances by John Jones are no longer around. Set your DVR. Put in the DVD. Go to YouTube. Go to UFC.com to see vintage John Jones. The John Jones that you want to see going forward. The John Jones that maybe you expect him to see. That's, that John Jones is no longer there. The John Jones that we saw tonight. Or the John Jones that we saw on Saturday night. And the John Jones that we saw fight Tiago Santos and Anthony Smith using his brain, using his mental, using strategic methods to win the fight. And winning close, but just winning good enough. that's the John Jones I think that we're going to see. the John Jones, who's not going to be taking chances. the John Jones, who's not going to be reckless, the John Jones who's not going to be looking for the quick knockout. If you really think about it, the one thing, the one weakness, if you're looking for a chink in the army, one of the main reasons why I say John Jones, keep your bony ass down at light heavyweight, one of the main reasons is because if you take a look at John Jones. One thing that he has never been, even when he's been at his doggone best, greatest, greatest of all time, he's never been a knockout knockout guy. John Jones is never going to knock out anybody. John Jones hasn't knocked out anybody. I think. I think the last time that he knocked out somebody was what 2013 or something like that, somewhere around there. That's the last time John Jones did anything as far as knocking out somebody. So now you expect him to go to light heavyweight, or you expect him to go to heavyweight, and then and compete with monsters like Nganu and Miosich? Now, maybe he could do the same deal in terms of being strategic because I think as far as being a mixed martial artist, I think John Jones is an extremely intelligent fighter. So maybe there is a way. I mean, Ali did the rope-a-dope against George Foreman. Ali psyched out the big bear, Sonny Liston. There had been some ways where where intelligence beats might. But Stipe Miocic is not George Foreman. Stipe Miocic is not Sonny Liston in terms of his mentality. And, oh, by the way, I forgot. John Jones ain't no damn Muhammad Ali. So the main deal is that, man, just, just stay down at light heavyweight, man. Do what George St. Pierre did. Do what Demetrius Johnson is doing. Do what those guys, do what Anderson Silva's doing. Man, stink your claim on the fact that you can become the greatest light heavyweight champion of all time, and by doing so, s- solidify your status as the greatest mixed martial artist of all time. Do that. Because, like I said, I'm, I'm just thinking about what he would do against Miyosic, what he would do against Naganu. If he was concerned about Santos's power on a torn knee at light heavyweight, what in the world is he going to do when he gets into the octagon and the first time he faces the power of a Ninganu? He faces the power of a Miocic because this John Jones, there's also one thing we've also seen. John Jones can get hit. John Jones can get hit. And he's showing that he has a really good chin against light heavyweights. But you go up and you fight yourself a Miocic, a guy who knocked out Fabricio Verdum moving backwards. Nah, I don't think that's, I don't think that's going to be the smart thing to do. man. basically just becomes a Demetrius Johnson of the light heavyweights. Dominate. Winning by being smart and being strategic. It might not be fan friendly. It might not be rock and sock But hey man, it's the best thing for you right now. If you take a look at John Jones' last seven UFC fights. The last fight. Now we're talking about UFC 165 against Guftison. Big, tall, rangy. Notice the pattern here. Dominic Reyes, big, tall, rangy. Gave John Jones a problem. Guftison, big, tall, rangy good boxing skills now jones can talk about that week that the fact that he didn't train or for that fight he didn't train and he was putting cocaine up his nose and doing all these other things and you can also bring up the argument that when he fought him in his first fight back from the suspension that he went ahead and he submitted them those are all fine and dandy things but by the time he fought gufferson the second time gufferson basically had one glove out the octagon i think that he i think he retired After his next fight, he got knocked out his next fight in Sweden, put the glove down and said, I'm done. So that Gustafson he fought coming back, coming back, was not the same Gustafson that gave him the toughest, still the toughest fight of his career. But if you take a look at the last seven fights that he's had, he's had two TKO victories. Alexander Gustafson at UFC 232 in in December of 2018. And then Cormier, the head kick and punches at UFC 182 in January of 2015, a decision that was later overturned when Jones would pop for PEDs. But other than that, show me something where, you know, hey, John Jones John Jones is the guy who's going to be knocking people out. John Jones is the guy who's going to be submitting people. I don't see it. I don't see it at all. So, again, this is the guy, Take a look. take a look at the ledger. Take a look at the ledger. Take a look at the things that John Jones has been doing as far as knockouts is concerned. He doesn't have any. I think his last knockout came seven, eight years ago. So John Jones has never been a one-punch knockout guy. And you're talking about the cream of the crop, if I can use that cliche, of heavyweights, the top two heavyweights in that division. I don't think John Jones would stay the chance. So John, you're mortal. John, you're 32 years old. And again, just because the gap has narrowed Just because the gap has closed, just because now all of a sudden John Jones is vulnerable, just because now John Jones now has the ability to be beat, still the king of the light heavyweight division is still John Jones. And again, people might not know Anthony Smith or Tiago Santos or Dominic Reyes. and People might not know something like Corey Anderson or anybody like that in the light heavyweight division. But guess what, UFC. That's what you're here for. So you can stop recycling the Conor McGregor's and hoping that Ronda Rousey returns to the octagon and everything like that. One of the great things about the UFC or about boxing or about anything in general, keep a bevy of fighters that you can promote. So you don't have to be at the whim and at the beck and call and, put and bow down on your knees and pull on your knee pads for Conor McGregor. Because if Conor McGregor gets goes away, who gives a fuck if you're a strong company if you're a strong business John Jones doesn't have to go out there and fight Francis Ngannou he doesn't have to go out and fight Stipe Miosic in the hopes that you can get one big payday or in the hope that that super fight can generate some interest let's start building up some of these contenders in the light heavyweight division because there's about 3 or 4 fights that I see John Jones taking down the road that can occupy his time for the next 12 to 18 months to where he doesn't have to go up and try to fight for the heavyweight championship, that would be great and that would be dandy, like ooh wee ooh wee. But no, I'm not a big fan of that bullshit. Anderson Silva's legacy did just fine staying at 185. george St. Pierre's legend and resume was still strong, staying at 170. He doesn't need to be talking about. You remember that nonsense where it was like Anderson Silva and george St. Pierre for the super fight and. They were going to be fighting at 185, and St. Pierre was like, hey, look, man, I walk around at 177. You're asking me to fight at that time the greatest mixed martial artist of all time at his division? I don't think so. There was the nonsense about the super fight between John Jones and Anderson Silva at 205, and Anderson Silva even took a couple of fights at 205 on short notice, or just to appease the company, where he embarrassed Forrest Griffin, and he knocked out James Irvin when he tried to give him the stink eye, so... There was some talk about that that never materialized. And again, the company, the UFC, did quite well. The UFC is doing quite well. We don't need to try to always shoehorn these super fights. Now, you're going to ask me this question, right? I know you're going to ask me this question. Wouldn't you love to see John Jones fight Stipe Miosic in due time? I would like to see that fight in due time. I would like to see that fight one time in due time. I would like to see that fight after Miosic defends that championship, that heavyweight championship against Daniel Cormier, and then Francis Ngannou, and then maybe a couple of others. And then in between, maybe he goes ahead and fights John Jones. I would like to see John Jones have two or three or four more defenses of the light heavyweight championship, and then maybe go up and have that type of fight with Stipe Miosic. That's the type of thing that I'm talking about. I would like to see Israel Adesanya eventually Go up to 205 and try to fight John Jones, but after he cleans out the division at middleweight, every we're so quick to sometimes make these big, huge, quote unquote super fights. Super fights in sports don't last. You can't make a super fight every month. There's only so many super fights out there. So let's try to make instead of super fights. That could happen once every couple of months. Let's see what we can do to make really good, competitive, interesting fights at, at for championship fights. Let's see what we can do about building up some light heavyweights. No one knew who Dominic Reyes was. No one was expecting Dominic Reyes to give to the give the performance that he had that he did against John Jones. Why is that? Why was it that this fight wasn't talked about more? Why wasn't this fight? Talked about in terms of, oh, man, John Jones is going to be fighting Dominic Reyes on Saturday down in Houston, Texas. Man, that's a big fight, man. This, that, and the other. Why wasn't there more hype concerning Dominic Reyes? Why wasn't this given the proper respect that it should have been? Now we've got the template. Now we've got the example. Now we've got it on film. Now we have the evidence. So now let's, get, let's start with the rematch right now. Let's start building this up. Damn, you did that shit with Chelsea Sonnen and Anderson Silva, right? Anderson Silva talked, excuse me, Chael Sonnen talked his way into a fight with Anderson Silva, gave him a hell of a challenge, an injured, depleted Anderson Silva in Oakland. Anderson Silva had to rescue himself in the fifth round and win, a, and win a stoppage on a night where Chael Sonnen, I don't think, fought any, I think that was the best Chael Sonnen ever fought in his life. That one night, that one time, that one moment in time when he thought he was more than he could be, when all of his dreams were just a heart of a way, and the answer was all up to him, and he decided to tap. Well, do you remember that big buildup for the UFC? I believe it was 200, the rematch with Anderson Silva. That was awesome. No one knew Chael Sonnen was until he started talking shit. But more than that, more importantly, before he gave the type of performance in Oakland against Anderson Silva, which said, oh, shit, yeah, I want to see this rematch. Because, of Anderson, because if Chael Sonnen would have talked a lot of shit, and then would have gotten his ass whooped in two rounds, then the, that would have been the end of Chael Sonnen. I don't, give a, I don't care how much verbiage he was spewing that he got from Vinnie Mac in the WWE, all of the, all of the promos that he learned from watching WWE performers. I don't care how much he would have given that nonsense. If the first time that he fought Anderson Silva, he would have gotten his ass kicked and been submitted in two rounds. But because it was a competitive fight, now we're talking about the rematch. Now it's a big uh, now it's a big deal. Now all of a sudden, that's a big deal. Now all of a sudden, Anderson Silva doesn't have to fight John Jones. All of a sudden, Anderson Silva doesn't have to fight George St. Pierre. And they're fighting for the championship as far as the middleweight is concerned. The middleweight championship. So it keeps the title, it keeps the title in its proper place. So if Let's let's have the let's have the rematch. Let's go. Let's get this done. Or at least let's have John Jones stay in the division, continue to defend his title in the division. If that means he has to fight Corey Anderson next, if he can get by who he's fighting this weekend, if it means that Dominic Reyes, if he wins one more fight just to show people that you know what, I've overcome that difficult loss to John Jones. And when I say difficult loss, I'm talking about in terms of I thought I won the fight, I didn't win the fight emotionally i didn't let that get me down i didn't become depressed i didn't affect i didn't let that affect my path on getting another opportunity and becoming a very strong candidate to fight for the title again a deserving rematch let's go man let's get this started and let's stop all this nonsense let's stop all this bullshit let's stop all this talk about john jones moving up to fight at the heavyweight division as far as right now as far as right now let's wait a couple of years down the line. Well, man, Miocic at that time will be 38, 39. John Jones will be 35. Shit. You want to wait that long? I'm sorry. 4.4 4 million pay per view buys when Floyd Mayweather fought Manny Pacquiao. Four or five years past the time that they should have fought. Now, I'm not comparing Pacquiao and Mayweather to John Jones and Stevie Miocic, but what I'm saying is by bringing up that comparison is that. Just because fighters are going to be fighting somebody or fighting each other past their prime doesn't mean that the public will not be interested. Yes, right off the bat, I'm going to tell you right now that if two years from now, three years from now, in the year 2022, 23 if John Jones fights Steepy Miocic, no, they're not going to be getting 4.4 million pay per view. But I'm quite sure that fight between Miocic and Jones in 2022, 2023 will be quite will be quite the um, the, quite the money maker. Not Pacquiao and Mayweather, not McGregor and Mayweather, not De La Hoya and Mayweather, but as far as MMA is concerned, as far as UFC is concerned, that fight would still do well. So let's just let's just pump the brakes on this nonsense and let's just see what John Jones can do about becoming the greatest or solidifying the notion that he is the greatest MMA fighter of all time. Not doing it by rushing up and fighting Stipe Miocic in the Later on this year or this summer or near the end of the year. Let's see him clear out the division. Let's see him let's see him put an exclamation point and no doubt about it on a rematch with Dominic Reyes. Let's see him now, the new John Jones. Not the John Jones that's gonna be throwing folks around, not the John Jones who's gonna be supremely dominant like he was in his first go-around as a UFC fighter. But now let's see this new reincarnation, this new John Jones as far as the fighting machine is concerned, more strategic. More intelligent, less risk-taking, more thought-provoking in terms of what he's doing, what he's done in octagon. Let's see what this John Jones can do cleaning out or hoping to clean out the light heavyweight division, taking on these new set of challengers. These new set of challengers who physically are more able to stay and to give John Jones problems. Let's see what he can do with that crop, solidify his legend even more, and then a year or two or 18 months from now let's have a one off let's have that fight with Stepe Mijotich but as for the time being right now john jones stay in your lane stay dominant stay where you need to be stay at the light heavyweight division <laughs> Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down and discuss today in the world of sports. Been thinking about, been talking about UFC 247, John Jones, Dominic Reyes. Talking about that rematch. Talking about John Jones staying at the light heavyweight division. Talking about, as of right now, I don't want to see John Jones fight Stephen Miocic. Don't want to see John Jones fight uh, Francis Ngannou. I just don't. I just don't. So I was speaking on the first part. The podcast about John Jones, do what you need to do, and a whole new John Jones. And again, hey, we saw Ali float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, from the time he started boxing to the time he won the heavyweight championship in nineteen sixty four over Sonny Liston, and then defended it against Cleveland Williams and Zora Foley and and um, and uh, oh my goodness, Ernie Terrell. Thank you. And that was a whole different Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, when he came back after his three and a half year layoff. Well, he became a much different fighter. It happens. It happens. The older you get, you have to you have to um, you have to change your style. And there's no different now with John Jones. And with the new generation of fighters, as I mentioned before, these guys now who are six three, foot three and six foot four, and these big guys, man, and these guys who are athletes, it's a whole new set of crop of competition for John Jones. And I think in three or four or five years time, I think we're going to be speaking about John Jones defeating Dominic Reyes the same way that we think about Floyd Mayweather beating Canelo Alvarez. When Floyd fought Canelo, it was like, well, Canelo wasn't ready yet. He was a young pup, this, that, and the other. Because, you know, Floyd, as soon as he started making buku bucks and knew that the public was suckers, he knew that he wasn't going to put himself into any type of desperate situation or put himself in any type of this disadvantaged this, this situation. So he could go ahead and he could can get Canelo Alvarez before Canelo Alvarez really became Canelo Alvarez. And he could fight guys like uh, these other guys. Oh my goodness, I see his face, but I don't remember his name. But he could fight these guys who are like two or three years past their prime. He could fight the Shane Mosley's. That's the guy I'm thinking about. He could fight Shane Mosley, who was two or three years past his prime. He could fight Manny Pacquiao, two or three years past his prime, on his terms in his city. And 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, the minutiae, the cliff notes, the, you know, the the, the details of the fight aren't going to be that clear. No one's going to care, but it's just going to say Floyd Mayweather beat Manny Pacquiao. Floyd Mayweather beat Arturo Gatti. Not Arturo Gatti. He, when Floyd fought Arturo, Arturo was still a, Floyd was, that's before Floyd became money May. But these other guys, when he fought De La Hoya, when he fought uh, Pacquiao, when he fought um uh, oh my goodness, Shane Mosley when he fought Canelo. He fought all these guys either before they were ready or past their prime. And that's think, the same thing with John Jones with Dominic Reyes. Right now, the victory over Dominic Reyes is all about, well, you know, I don't know. And many people are, are casting John Jones out to be the villain almost. Like, well, you know, that's one of the reasons why I don't like John Jones, because I thought he didn't win the fight and this Dominic Reyes guy, who's this guy? No big deal. Let me tell you something, man. I think in five years from now with Dominic Reyes, I think we're going to be looking back on John Jones beating Dominic Reyes as a, wow, that showed you how great Dominic uh, John Jones was. He beat Dominic Reyes for the championship. Because I think in five or six years, I think Dominic Reyes is going to be one of those guys who's going to have the opportunity, not just to win the light heavyweight championship, but keep it for a long time. Reyes right now is 30 years old, so we're not talking about a spring chick and a young pup. But I think Dominic Reyes is a guy who, after only 13 fights, has shown that uh, this guy has the potential to be a really, really good light heavyweight champion. So, whatever whatever happens to John Jones, who knew, man? When Chris Weidman beat Anderson Silva, who knew that was going to be the last that we saw of the Anderson Silva that we all knew and loved? The Anderson Silva that clowned Forrest Griffin. The Anderson Silva that knocked out uh, Tiago... Oh, my goodness, Leo. Um, oh... The Brazilian guy, doggone it, the name I forgot. See, this is what happens when you get old. You start forgetting things. But basically, the guy who, Anderson Silva, the guy who just ran right through the division and beat everybody, Vitor Belfort, that's the guy I'm thinking about. See, he comes to me. See, like this kids, this is what happens when you get old. You see the picture. You see the face. You see the fight. I can actually see Anderson Silva kick the guy in the face and see, B- see Belfort go down. I saw all of that. The only thing that wasn't registering was the name, and if I just paused just a little bit and just gave myself an opportunity, the name was going to come down the pike. You know the name was next, the, the name was fourth in line. I wanted the name to be first in line in my memory in my mind, but it was fourth in line, so I had to wait but when, so since I'm doing a podcast, I can't afford to wait I have to give I have to give it to you now now, now, so oh, this aging process sucks. But I guess as I get older, it gets worse, huh? All right. No, but basically back to what I was talking about. So with Anderson Silva, when he fought Chris Weidman and he got knocked out and many people thought because he was clowning and this, that, and the other, who knew that was going to be the last time we saw Anderson Silva, the dominant Anderson Silva. So when you're talking about the greatest, when you talk about during the end of his career, and I think for all intent and purposes, the career of, My main man, the reason why I love the sport of MMA, George St. Pierre. I think his career basically is done. We saw him fight Johnny Hendricks. We saw the beating that he took. And he was kind of like, man, I'm done. I'm through. Who knew that would be the last time that we saw GSP? Who knew going into that Hendricks fight? Who knew against Big Rig? So we never know when it's going to be over for these guys. Even the all-time greats. We never know. There could be an immediate rematch. Or there could be a rematch. Who knows? Maybe the the winner of the Corey Anderson John Blankovich fight, maybe they fight John Jones, lose, uh, beat John Jones, and that's the last time we see John Jones as as what we know him now as the pound for pound greatest fighter of all time. Who knows? It could happen in his next fight. It could happen in his fifth fight. It could happen in six months. It could happen in six years. We don't know. That's one of the interesting things about MMA, man. When when folks lose, when the great ones lose, or it gets difficult, or we never know. We, we don't see a lot of the regression. You understand what I'm saying? We, we It seems like great fighters, legendary fighters, Hall of Fame fighters, it seems like they go from the greatest or one of the greats or the pound for pound best to, wow, his career might be in jeopardy in terms of being a legitimate champion, I mean, that goes, that comes and goes really quickly. They go from being the champion of the world to, I don't see where he can become champion again very quickly. I mean, hell, we're having questions now about Max Holloway after he lost two fights in a row, Dustin Poirier, and then he lost his, uh, then he lost his, uh, his championship we don't know what's going to be happening as far as the road back to where Max Holloway was before he fought Dustin Poirier. Remember BJ Penn, but BJ Penn ever the same fighter after he lost to Frankie Edgar Nabu Abu Dhabi. No. So we, we don't know. We don't know, man. The, 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 the regression is swift and shocking. So as much as we think, ah, oh, you know, Jones, this, that, and the other, I mean, I've just spoke before it in the, earlier segment that, oh, you know, John, you know, he's a new wave of fighter and he's still this and he's still that. There could be a situation where John Jones loses the rematch to Dominic Reyes and then we might not see John Jones, the dominant John Jones, the unbeatable John Jones, the greatest fighter of all time, John Jones. We might not ever see that fight fighter again. It could end just like that. So that's one of the interesting things about MMA, man. You never know. Even more so than boxing. Fighters in turn, from them being champions to on the outside looking in to that guy who we loved and adored and put on the pedestal, and this guy is the greatest fighter here, and this guy is the champion here, and this guy is the pound for pound great here, and this guy the best in our generation there. It goes by very, very quickly, so you never. Ever know. And maybe that's one of, that could be, maybe that's your argument to me to say, well, that's the reason why Stipe Miosic and John Jones need to get together and get into that fight and get that heavyweight fight going because shit, you never know. You don't know. Who knows? And that could also go for Stipe Miosic. We don't know. We don't know when he's coming back. He's got this injury with his eye. We don't know when he's coming back. So everything is muddled. Everything is up in the air. And John Jones, man, just stay at uh, light heavyweight and do what you need to do. Wendell's World in Sports I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. I think the only reason why, and I'll end the Jones discussion in terms of what he needs to do with this. The one reason why I think Jones would is, is itching to go up and fight Miosic. number one is for the title. Number two is he's a competitor. Number three, he has a big ego. In in sports, combat sports, you have to have a big ego. So, I'm not saying that in terms of a, I'm not trying to say that in a disparaging way. You have to be the guy who thinks that my shit don't stink. You have to be when you get in there to say that I can beat King Kong and Godzilla all on the same night. So... I think Jones has that ego to say that, yeah, what the, what the fuck do you know about UFC? What do you know about fighting? What was the last time you got out of the gun? What was the last time you put on the pads? When was the last time you wrestled? What are your fighting credentials to tell me, you fat piece of shit, that I'm not good enough to go to a heavyweight and be steeping you! F-U-C-K-U. I can see that. I understand that. That's the attitude John Jones has to have. But one of the reasons also, another reason also is because I think he sees his rival, and I, I've never understood this rivalry. The, rival be- the rivalry between Daniel Cormier and John Jones, there is none. There is none. There are two guys who can't stand each other. they are two guys who are probably two of the top four or five greatest mixed martial artists of all time, and that's about it. And when everything is said and done, John Jones is a better mixed martial artist than Daniel Cormier. There is no rivalry. For it to be a rivalry, shouldn't you have to win at least one fight? Hell, how many in what five, six, seven, and eight rounds that they fought? Nine and a half rounds that they fought. Eight and a half rounds that they fought. How many rounds have Daniel has Daniel Cormier won against John Jones? One, two. That's not a rivalry. That doesn't sit there and be a rivalry. That's the same joke that you used to give. When Roger Federer was playing Andy Roddick. The rivalry. What rivalry? Why? Because Andy Roddick beat Roger Federer once in the U.S. Open? Name another time. The rivalry between Maria Sharapova and Serena Williams. What rivalry? See, Serena lost to Sharapova in the Wimbledon final. Serena said, fuck this bitch, and never lost to her again. The only time he lost to her was, what, when, when no, in fact, no, no. In fact, Serena even took, Serena even took Sharapova's boyfriend away from her. So she's scoring and winning and beating her both on the court and off the court. So there's no rivalry between Serena and Sharapova. There was no rivalry between Andy Roddick and Roger Federer. And there's no rivalry between John Jones and Daniel Cormier. They're just two people who just can't stand each other, who just happen to be extraordinary, legendary mixed martial artists. But just to get under Cormier's craw, and just to kind of like one up him one more time, if John Jones can go ahead and beat Miosic or whoever the champion is at, that, is at that time and become the heavyweight champion, that's the only thing on the resume that Daniel Cormier has over John Jones, that he's a two time simultaneous champion. And John Jones can talk about all the shit he wants about, well, you know, you never beat me and I handed you the light heavyweight championship because of my stupidity and all those other things. That may be true. But again, just like I mentioned before, about 10, 15, 20 years from now, down the road from now, when we speak about Pacquiao and Mayweather, when we speak about Shane Mosley and Mayweather, when we talk about uh, Canelo and, and, um, and, and Floyd Mayweather, the minutia, the details are not going to be needed or wanted or, or heard. So, when everything is said and done, it's, well, yeah, okay, John Jones, you got on Cormier, you beat Cormier twice, but guess what? One was thrown out because you were cheating, and the other one is the fact that, guess what? I've won, I've won two belts. You only won one. So, I think Jones is kind of itching to kind of get up there and do the one-upmanship. And I also, have, I also think that he believes that that's something that kind of Cormier can kind of needle needle him about this rivalry ain't going away man this is going to be something where i think these two guys god willing if they live to be in their 60s 70s and 80s i think these two will still be going after each other and be sitting up there talking about two belt champion john two belt champion i beat me what happened to you skinny so i mean that's going to be interesting to follow and that, that would be one of the main reasons why i think um john jones would go up and fight Stipe Miocic, sooner rather than later. When I'm saying sooner rather than later, I'm t- talking about his next fight or two. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Okay, let's, let's, let's go ahead and tackle this. Let's get this out of the way. Bring up a chair. Let me sit down. Sit down. Have a seat. Stop what you're doing. Stop what you're doing. Sit down. It's good. You're set? All right. One of the biggest takeaways from this fight, horrible scoring from the judge, from one of the judges. In fact, that really if you think about it, that could be the leading force that could drive the public to wanting this as far as the immediate rematch. If the scores would have been 49-48 or 48-47 across the board, I don't think maybe there was there would have been such a clamoring or there would have been such sympathy for Dominic Reyes, but 49-46 throws everything in far as well, you know, Dominic Reyes really got screwed. I think that he got screwed, shouting and screaming would be less. If the score is for 48-47 or 49-46, Judge Joe Solis scored it 49-46, four rounds to one for John Jones. As I mentioned before, four and five, yeah, you definitely give John Jones. How in the hell, and maybe round three, you give John Jones, understood. How in the living hell, Joe, can you give one of the first two rounds to John Jones? Have no fucking clue. If he if he gave round one to John Jones, he shouldn't judge anything. I mean anything in life. Forget MMA matches. He shouldn't judge anything. How does this dress on me look? Make me look? Does this dress make me look fat? How do you think I'm doing here? How do you think? He shouldn't be able to judge or give an opinion on anything. If Judge felt Joe Solis saw round one going to John Jones, so. Basically, what happens is that scorecard. Congratulations, Joe Solis. Congratulations. You have officially made the CJ Ross Adelaide Bird Pantheon of judging. You have become the CJ Ross or Adelaide Bird of MMA judging. Congratulations. <laughs> Way to go. Awesome. Awesome. Now, when you hear the name Joe Solis, as far as the scorecard, as far as the judge is concerned, the next time they're fighting in Houston, Texas. You're going to hear the groan of, oh, that is made by viewers when we hear one of the judges is C.J. Ross or Adelaide Byrne Vegas boxing. So that man should never be allowed to judge an MMA fight again. And here's the deal. Here's the most interesting thing. This was a tweet from Aaron uh, Bronister of TSN. Joe Solis, he said he given Jones the second, third, fourth, and fifth rounds of that fight. Unfucking believable But here's the deal. Um, this this is a guy who has some who has some experience doing this. Such he's a he's a mixed martial artist instructor. He's been training since 1977. Among his listed achievements are black belts in judo and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He's reportedly a certified uh teacher or martial arts instructor. So this is not some guy who has just a boxing background. This is a guy. This isn't a guy who has no idea about what mixed martial arts or the fighting arts is all about. This is a guy who teaches this stuff. Unbelievable. But when you take a look at some of his decisions, it's just been like head scratching. So I don't. I don't know about that one. I don't know about that nonsense. So this wasn't a situation where you know Judge Solis was a guy who never had never stepped into the octagon or didn't know what he's talking about. No, this guy's actually an instructor. And he's been trading for almost 40, he's been trading for over 40 years. It's 87, 97, 2007, 2017. Over 40 years, man, 43 years. And this is the best that he can do? Terrible. Horrible. But, uh, yeah, that, that was the main deal. Now, I don't think that, again, I think it ruined the opportunity that 49 46 score for us and maybe put some distance into a rematch. And I think it did John Jones no favor because there's a good number of people out there. There's a good number of MMA fans. There's a good number of sportsmen, people who like sports who don't like John Jones because of the transgressions that he did. They feel that he's phony. They feel that he's a fake. They feel that he's a bully. They feel that he's arrogant. He hasn't gotten to the point in his mixed martial arts career where that's going to be changing the same thing the same way that it did with Rashad Evans the same way that it did with Daniel Cormier the same thing that it did with um, The same thing that it did with Michael Bisbane how they started off at the villain and they the end of their career They became fan uh, favorites so It did a lot of damage as far as you know putting some distance between a rematch but uh, just Solis. Yeah, really poor job on the judging. Really poor job. But then again, as mentioned before, that wasn't even the worst decision of the evening. That wasn't that wasn't even the worst decision of the evening. Derek, the black beast, Derek Lewis, how he won that fight over over Latifi, that was a joke. That was ridiculous. That was home cook cooking. That was more egregious than those who thought that Dominic Reyes beat John Jones. The Derrick Henry decision for him, that was that was bad. And that was really bad. So Yeah, man, I've some good stuff on UFC two forty seven. And now we've got a little break. We got Israel Adesanya fighting Yoel Yoel Romero next month at UFC two forty eight. And then we've got, man, fingers crossed, man, knock on wood, baby. Knock on wood that n Nermaga and Tony Ferguson can finally get it on. It seemed like they've been scheduled to fight each other for like eighteen thousand times. And whether it's Nermarga Bedolf or whether it's Ferguson For some reason, because of injury, those two have not gotten together in the octagon. Tony Ferguson, I think, is highly, highly undervalued and disrespected. This was a guy who's won 12, 12, 13 consecutive fights. Tony Ferguson is a bad, bad man, y'all. I'm telling you. Don't think that everybody's talking about. Well, you know, Conor McGregor is he going to fight for the light heavyweight uh, championship against Khabib? Is he going to fight for the light lightweight championship against Khabib? And that rematch could do this. And that rematch could do that. Man, don't be sleeping on Tony Ferguson. Do not be sleeping on, on Tony. The only problem is we got to get these guys in the octagon. And I'm going to be holding my breath until April 18th, at the time those guys actually step foot in the octagon. Up to that point, I'm still going to be sitting there holding my breath, going. I don't know emotionally. I'm not going to go there emotionally. I'm not gonna let myself go there So April 18th, that's the fight. I'm looking forward to As We move forward in the upcoming events for the UFC It's gonna be a good card on this weekend, which I'm going to be looking at again. I like heavyweight uh, to Fight to see who might be John Jones's next challenger So gonna be doing some things looking at that my beautiful wonderful sexy Valentina Shevchenko. What a dominant performance that she had. And now they're talking about the third fight between Shevchenko and Amanda Nunez. I don't know, man. I don't know. They fought twice and stung out the joint. And I remember they were supposed to fight one time. And Amanda Nunez uh, canceled at the last minute and caught the ire of Dana White. And So I don't know. There might be some bad juju or some bad stuff going on with that fight. But you know what? I mean, when you take a look at it, who else do they have to fight Amanda New Yeah, the champion at 135 and 145, who else is she gonna fight? Shevchenko at 125, who else is he who else is she gonna fight? How dominant is she gonna be at 135 to move up 10 pounds, you know, to fight uh, to fight Nunez? But what else do you have? What else do you have in the women's division right now? What other fight in the women's division do you wanna see? Now I made I made the argument before about John Jones about you know he should stick there and the light heavy weight and clean out the division. Yeah, but here's one thing, though. Here's the difference between me saying that with John Jones and me saying that with Shevchenko, Valentina Shevchenko, and Emmanuel Nunez. John Jones has some legitimate contenders in his division that could give him trouble, that could beat him. John Jones would still be favored, but there's legitimate, there's legitimate contenders. I don't think there's any legitimate contenders for the of weight in the, uh, in the division that Shevchenko and Nunez are in. That's the only difference. There's a lot more dearth in in that division than others, so we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens, but overall, it was a good night of fighting. I enjoyed it, and as I mentioned before, I'm looking forward to the upcoming bouts and see where all of this stuff finally figures itself out. World of Sports. I'm your host Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. There's a lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. We're talking about the UFC. Now I'm going to be moving on to some NBA, the NBA All-Star break is upon us. I got the Clippers and the Boston Celtics in the background, and I think Brad Stevens is just unbelievable. I think this guy is just fantastic. He's He's an incredible human being. I mean, what he's trying to do right now, I've never heard of. I mean, here's a guy who's coaching the Boston Celtics. A guy who's been doing a great job so far with the Celtics. They lose Kyrie Irving, bring in Kemba Walker, and they're doing all this kind of stuff. And, you know, they got them in the position to do some things. I know that they didn't pick up anybody as far as a big man is concerned at the NBA trade deadline, but still the Celtics are going to be right there And depending upon what happens with the home court advantage of the Philadelphia 76ers and how things shake out in the playoffs. I think the Celtics are going to be one of these teams that are going to be formidable challengers to the Milwaukee Bucks. And you have to credit Brad Stevens on getting this team and the emergence of Jalen Brown and the bounce back year for Jason 12 time Tatum and the in the, you know, the, I guess the, I should say emergence because Kimball Walker's always been a really good basketball player in the NBA. But now the fact that he's doing this for a team that's actually good instead of a team like Charlotte, where you can basically do whatever you want to for a team that really didn't have a lot of talent, I think Brad Stevens deserves a, a tremendous amount of credit. Not as much credit as, say, maybe Billy Donovan and what he's doing in Oklahoma City, but my goodness, what Brad Stevens is doing with the Boston Celtics is absolutely fantastic. And if you equate all of those things in the fact that this man is also trying to become the next nominee, the Democratic uh, presidential candidate for the White House, I think the guy's unbelievable. I think Brad Stevens is just unbelievable. Going by his... You know, changing his name to Pete Buttigieg and going on a debate and, you know, up there in Iowa and New Hampshire and doing what he's doing. I what you, I mean, you know, Stevens has been absolutely fantastic on the debate stage. I mean, he's taking on Biden. He's taking on Warren. He's taking on Sanders. He's what, 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 what? What? Wait a minute, what'd you say? They're two people. No, what, Sanders, wait, hold on. Wait, are you trying to tell me that Buttigieg and Stevens are two different people, you mean or not? But but I saw it. Are you sure? I thought Buttigieg was his alias. You know, like that that country music singer, Garth Brooks? You know, like uh, Beyonce, Sasha Fierce? That that really is? Those are two different people? Oh, oh. (laughs) Never mind, never mind. They're not like Cliff and Chris Paul, you know, the, the the Allstate guy? That No? There's no connection there between Buttigieg and... and they're not brothers separated? That, no? Okay. All right. Okay. <clears throat> anyway, <clears throat> sorry about that. Okay. Uh, Wendell's World in Sports. i mean, Oops. <laughs> Wendell's World in Sports. That's an attempted comedy. Wendell's World in Sports. I'll be here all the week. Thank you. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. No, seriously. Brad Stevens has been doing a good job with the uh with the boston celtics and uh those guys are playing playing pretty good basketball had their ups and downs but a uh, flawed team but you know what i mean the reemergence of gordon hayward from taking a year to get himself acclimated to playing basketball without the thoughts and feelings of the injury that he had so he's been playing well you know, they've gotten some good moments from enos canter and theis and some of their other big men robert williams iii but you know going into the playoffs. I don't know, man. I mean, if Joel Embiid could ever, I don't know. I don't know. We Maybe there's got to be another podcast because right now we're about an hour into my podcast right here, so I could go on about Joel Embiid and the Philadelphia 76ers for another 45 minutes. And yes, I know. Stop screaming. Stop going, "No!" I, I'm not going to get into the Philadelphia 76ers situation. Let's just say that the face of that franchise, the leader of that team is Ben Simmons. Are Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid and I would kind of say that this is Joel Embiid's team if Joel Embiid is going to be the guy on your team the leader on your team the franchise guy the guy that you're going to be looking forward looking to to see what he can do to get you to a championship or the NBA finals or reach your potential I don't think Joel Embiid maturity wise has the ability to get you there just yet just yet I'm not saying that this is something that's terminal in terms of his unprofessionalism at times and his immaturity at times. But as of right now, if you're taking a look at the 2019-2020 season and going into the 2020 NBA playoffs as we stand right now, going into the All-Star break, Joel Embiid, I would not put my faith in in terms of him being the guy that's going to lead the resurgence of Philadelphia and have them play on the road or at least play near the efficiency and the passion and the level of play that they play at home on the road. I mean, the inconsistency could be led straight toward Joel Embiid. He's not the only reason. I'm not putting all the blame on him, of course, but with him being the leader on the team, with him being the best player on the team, I swear, man, he's got so much Dwight Howard in him where it's like, and well, I mean Dwight Howard in his prime, in his in his Orlando days, in the fact that, man, you, you just thought if if Dwight Howard could have just grown up, and stopped acting like a goof and just taking his craft seriously and really become dedicated and just just, just concentrate on just dominating and just being the best that he could be, that Dwight Howard could have been that guy. Not LeBron James, not Kobe Bryant, not anybody else. Dwight Howard could have been the most unstoppable force in the NBA during this crime. But he was too immature. He was too goofy. He was too much of a scatterbrain to, to do that. And I feel that's the same way with Joel Embiid. That's the comparison I bring with Joel Embiid to Dwight Howard. Joel Embiid should be the most dominant player in the NBA right now. Not LeBron, not Luka, not Giannis, not James Harden, not any of those guys. The most dominant player in the NBA right now should be Joel Embiid. But unfortunately, Joel Embiid doesn't have the mentality, he doesn't have the maturity to do that. He just doesn't have it. So those unbelievable gifts that he has, to be dominant, and just like Dwight Howard, I remember when Dwight Howard was playing for Orlando, I saw it because I was in Laughlin. I was teaching in Laughlin, and I was at the hotel watching the game in my hotel room, and they were playing the Knicks. And, okay, it's the Knicks, all right. but still, they were playing the Knicks, and Howard was just dominant. I don't know if he had a bad day, I don't know if his girlfriend at the time pissed him off, I don't know what was going on in his life, but Dwight was not in a good mood and he wanted to take his anger and his frustration, whatever was bothering him, whatever he felt, whatever what was going on in his life where he felt was doing him wrong, he was going to take it out on the New York Knicks. And man, that guy was damonet. The Knicks had zero. I forgot. I don't know if it was Eddie Curry back then or Tyson Chandler. I don't remember who the center that was guarding him that night, but man, they had no chance because Dwight was angry. He was locked in. He wanted to punish somebody. He wanted to dominate somebody. Again, he was angry at somebody, and he was going to take it out on the New York Knicks. And I don't think I've seen Dwight Howard before since played that dominant. Even when he led the Orlando Magic to the upset in the Eastern Conference Finals against the LeBron James-led, first time LeBron James-led Cleveland Cavaliers, and the best opportunity for the Lakers and Kobe to play LeBron and his team in the NBA Finals, that was, every. remember they had the Puppets? lebron and kobe with the puppets well that campaign by nike was ruined single-handedly by dwight howard in the eastern conference Finals. lebron averaged like 38 9 and 10 or some ridiculous some nonsense like that but dwight was just as dominant and just as good during that during that eastern conference final but i never saw him as focused as angry as determined that he that he was that night watching that game against the New York Knicks when he was with the Orlando Magic, in my hotel room, as I was looking to waiting to substitute Mr. Stocksdale Mr. Scottsdale Scott Stocksdale oh what the hell I forgot the guy's name Scott's uh, government class the next day watching that game I was like damn if this guy's gonna play like this on a consistent basis the league is in some trouble the same thing with Joel Embiid I saw Joel Embiid played that way against the Golden State Warriors. I think it was last year. I mean, Golden State had nobody, nobody to stop that guy, and Joel just dominated, dominated from the offensive end of the floor, dominated from the defensive end of the floor, dominated just all. There would no, there was nothing Golden State could do to stop that man. If that Joel Embiid could play, could play like that, eighty-two game schedule, he plays sixty-five games because of injury, rest, whatever. If Embiid could play like that, 45 out of the 65 games, believe, that's it. That's it. The way I saw him play against Golden State that night, doesn't even have to be every single game, Joel. Just give me 50. You know, the other other eight you can basically take off, and the other seven you can give me anywhere between sixty-five and seventy-five percent. But for 45-50 games, give me that dominant fuck you. I'm going to dominate you. I hate your mother. If your grandmother was here I would, and she was guarding me, I would elbow her in the face and, and yam on her head. Give me that Joel for at least 50 games. we will be cool. And Joel would, would win the MVP every single year. And the Philadelphia 76ers would be a serious challenge for the NBA championship. But that Joel Embiid is not coming around. He's too out of shape. He's too injury prone and he's too immature. So Philadelphia 76ers. There you go. And You know, we got Al Horford now who's hurt and he's coming off the bench now and Ben Simmons doesn't want to shoot a jump shot or three-point shot and Tobias Harris. He's a nice but he's nice and Jason Richardson is nice and they've got some nice players, but that team is set up around Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons and those guys have to find a way. The problem is is that both of those guys the problem is Joel Embiid is a more willing outside shooter as a better and more willing outside shooter three-point shooter than Ben Simmons is. And really, I think the best team that Philadelphia can have, if Joel's not going to give maximum effort, if Joel's going to be playing to where Philadelphia fans are booing them, booing him and he's turning around and telling the fans to shut the fuck up, if that Joel Embiid is going to be is this, is this, uh, being there for the Philadelphia 76ers, then I think the best Philadelphia team is to have Ben Simmons be the point power forward. So where he can dribble the ball down, get into the block, And then have cutters and then have some folks do some screening actions and do some other things to where you know that unless it's a layup or a dunk, that Ben Simmons is not going to be shooting the basketball. So let's see what we can do about, while Ben Simmons is in the post, let's see what they can do about running some off, some, some, you know, some, some action, some opposite side action to get some three point shots up and this, that, and the other. Well, let's see about that. Cutting through the basket because... With Joel and Ben Simmons, you have two guys on the court who are your leaders who can't, basically who can't shoot. So that is a problem for the Philadelphia 76ers moving forward. But we'll see how Brett Brown deals with this. Brett Brown better do something because if Philadelphia is one and done, then Brett Brown, I believe, I'm guessing, I'm assuming, will not be the head coach of the Philadelphia 76ers. And there could be a whole different look to Philadelphia if the 76ers do what Boston did last year with Kyrie Irving, which is basically embarrassed themselves in the playoffs and changes had to be made in that situation. Expect the same thing in terms of a turnaround, a change. And that could also also be Nelson brand GM. So some interesting things going forward with the Philadelphia 76ers, Wendell's world in sports. I'm your host. Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So yes, all-star break is upon us. Um, So far, it's been a good season for the league for me. Now, again, I love the NBA. I love the NBA. You know, it's my favorite sport and all those type of things. So maybe I'm biased. I'm a guy when it comes to the NBA. I try to be realistic. But I also am a guy who admittedly is a glass half full guy to when it comes to some of his issues. But uh, so far, so good. The loss, Oh, I saw that game between L.A. and Denver last night. That was a good game. And LeBron, LeBron is something else. 17 years and he's still doing the thing. And he's. I. I'm waiting for... The LeBron checkout on some of his, whether it be on defense or taking some games off or taking more plays off or load management and all of those things. I don't see it. I don't see it. I'm waiting for some of the minor injuries on Anthony Davis to affect his play. I don't see it. I see, I see a Laker team right now who I don't think can beat the Clippers when everything is all said and done, especially now with the Clippers acquiring Marcus Morris. But um, L.A. was impressive last night. Luka comes back from his ankle injury and scores 30-something points and almost has a triple-double against the Sacramento Kings. Good time in the NBA right now. And again, since football is now over, I can concentrate all of my time on Georgetown and the uh, NBA. It's going to be an interesting race to uh, the playoffs. The Eastern Conference is jacked as far as the bottom feeders are concerned for the for the final spot in the NBA playoffs, but it should be interesting. Utah doing their thing. Toronto just had their 15-game winning streak snap, but Pascal out Siakam still continues to play well, and despite the fact they don't have the, the main guy, Kawhi Leonard, playing for him this year, I mean, their win pays for compared to the season before when you're speaking about Toronto is either one game off or just about the same, so it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting moving forward. Here's something, though, that kind of interests me. And this will be reported by uh, ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski, that the NBA informed its teams a few weeks ago that it wants to continue studying and discussing some significant items, including an in-season tournament, a play-in tournament, and the receding of the conference finals. The NBA Really hope to get the thing rolling by the 2021-2022 season, the year of the 75th anniversary. And it's really discussing this right now with the television partners to see what they can do. Because one of the things Adam Silver is looking to do is to kind of think outside the box. to see what we can do to kind of make some of these dog days in the NBA mean something. Because as of right now, heading into the All-Star break, these guys, these teams, these players are basically looking forward toward this break. It's been a long season. First time this has been an extended break, so you have guys now taking their families, taking their girlfriends, taking their boyfriends, you know, keeping them in the closet that way, but uh, doing their thing, taking them on vacation and getting away from the game and recharging and getting set for the final push of the NBA season. So during the season where we have these moments where it seems like, you know, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Monday, who cares? It seems all the same. What city are we in? Are we in Boston? Are we in Indianapolis? Are we in Milwaukee? All seems the same. Getting in at four in the morning and all the hotels seem to be the same. The food seems to taste the same. The routine seems to be a little dull and dragging and all those things. It's a good time now for the players to get away and to kind of put a little spice into the regular season during those dog days, which I just mentioned. Adam Silver is thinking about coming up with some games that might mean something, such as an in season tournament, something, an idea that he got from watching soccer games, European soccer games, or should I say, football games, so, I don't know about that kind of stuff, man, I mean, really, what does it mean, because because they always use this stuff about, you know, in college basketball, for instance, they have the preseason tournaments, and you have these tournaments, like the one in Maui, and the one in the Battle for Atlantis over in these exotic places, and all of these other things, and, you know, people are talking about, you know, this could be, it could be something similar. I think if you're going to even get this to pass in a perfect world, it's got to be a situation where it's like, look, you got to offer these players a whole bunch of money for the victor. And then you got to have them in places like say Las Vegas or have it in a places like Hawaii or something like that. But then again, that's going to mess with the owners talking about, well, wait a minute, are you going to take home games away from us? So you can have a tournament or have some of the regular season games being played in Las Vegas Or being played in seattle or being played in hawaii or being played in bermuda or being played in the bahamas or whatever i don't know i mean you know i'm just i'm just naming some locales that maybe the maybe the players might be like okay i mean (laughs) i i wouldn't mind if i'm gonna have to play in these fucking games i wouldn't mind spending a week down there in, in cabo or spending a week over in the bahamas or spending a week over in maui or Or something like that. I don't know. We're spending a week out in Vegas or spending... I don't know. I don't know. I'm just right now kind of thinking out of my head and talking out of my ass right now when it comes to this kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, like in college basketball, you have the Maui Invitational, the Battle for the Atlantis in the Bahamas, the 2K Empire Classic at Madison Square Garden. That's a two-day event. You got the Las Vegas Invitational. You got the Cancun Challenge. You have the Paradise Jam in the Virgin Islands. If you're going to have some type of in-season tournament, Would you have those type of locales? And if you're thinking about why should you have those tournaments to begin with, I mean, let's take a look at college basketball, right? Do you even remember? Do you even know who participated in the Maui Invitational, let alone who won it? Same thing go for Battled with Atlantis or the 2K Empire Classic. I know Georgetown was in that. Um, The Las Vegas Invitational. Do you even know who even participated in these games, let alone who won it? So basically, by the time the playoffs roll around, I mean, there's, there's, I know that, well, you know, one of the incentives is the fact that there's only one team that can win an NBA championship. There's only 16 teams that can make the playoffs. So what do we have to do for the other teams in our league to have the fans come out and give them a reason to watch a basketball game? What do we need to do to have fans in Sacramento come to the games to watch them play? What do we need to do to have teams this year of the Golden State Warriors to come out and watch them play? What do we need to do to have fans of the Washington Wizards come out and watch them play in February and January and March when they're when they're basically already eliminated from winning a championship, from being in the playoffs? What can we do with the New York Knicks? What can we do with the Brooklyn Nets? What can we do with these teams that are not vying for a championship, who don't really have a realistic shot, of making the championship like the Cleveland Cavaliers. What can we do that give these fans incentives to buy tickets or to even be interested in watching their team play? Ah, I got an idea. We'll have them be the champions of the Las Vegas Open, or we'll have them be the champions of the Cancun Challenge, or the champions of the Honolulu Hulu Hulu Hula Hula, I don't know, or something like that. I don't think fans really care about that nonsense. I don't think fans really care, especially if you ask a team, say, for instance, who won the Maui Invitational, how well does that translate for them in terms of college basketball's concern making the tournament? Does that appease the fan base? Does that appease the athletic director if you're a coach in college basketball to say, yeah, we missed the tournament, but we sure did well in the Maui Invitational. The ultimate prize is to win a championship. The ultimate prize is to work your way to win a championship. And if you have these playing games, these tournament uh, in-season tournament games in the NBA, who cares if you're John Beeline? Who cares if you're Mike Woodson or uh, 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 David uh, uh, Tinzel, the the coach of the uh, New York Knicks, who named David, oh, never mind. But when you have these coaches whose jobs are on the line, who gives a fuck about them winning a tournament in December or... Or February or March. Who cares, man? Are you how well are you doing as far as making it to the David thisdale Thank you. How how far are you in your development of making it to the NBA playoffs and eventually being contenders for an NBA championship? Do you think if the Boston Celtics stunk, if the LA Lakers stunk, if the Chicago Bulls stunk. That people are going to be up there dancing in the street like Martha and the Vandellas because they won the Maui Invitation or they won some in-season tournament. If you're a Lakers fan, if you're a Celtics fan, if you're uh, Indiana Pacers fan, or anything like that, no, no. So that's my that's my deal with it. Some of the other things that he was talking about the in-season or the play-in tournament, I think that's a pretty decent idea. Um, here's one thing that I thought of though. On Wendell's World and Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Here the podcast, so doggone glad that you could be with us. Here was my thing, because everybody's speaking about tanking. You know, people have always whined and complained about teams who are not in the playoffs, especially in basketball, teams who are tanking. And when you equate tanking, you're also equating load management. That teams are sitting out their stars, or teams are not playing their stars to the fullest because they want to get a better seed, or they want to get a better opportunity to get the number one pick. This is a... One example of a team that's tanking or teams that are tanking, and it goes to load management. So they're thinking about, you know, what can we do to kind of stop this? What can we do to have our TV partners happy and not feel that we're getting gypped when we see the Los Angeles Clippers on TNT or ABC or ESPN? We don't know if Kawhi Leonard's going to be playing because of load management. Well, we hope that we don't have a game with the Los Angeles Lakers playing and the LeBron James and Anthony Davis aren't playing because of load management, especially now since you're getting into the months of February and April that the regular season is winding down. What's going to be, what what thought or what what can you do for us to make sure that the Joel Embiid's and the Kawhi Leonard's and the James Harden's and the Luka Doncic's and the Giannis Adena who missed the other game uh, last night against the, who were they playing last night? I watched that game. It was uh, Indiana and Milwaukee. So what's going to be the, what certainty can you give us that load management will not be fucking up our TV schedule when I'm sitting down on a Saturday night and I want to watch the Milwaukee Bucks play the LA Lakers, but oh, I forget. Giannis isn't playing, Anthony Davis isn't playing, and LeBron isn't playing. Fuck. So what what can you give us to make sure that that doesn't happen? Well, here's my deal with that. And I've, I think this is, might be a pretty good idea. I started the, formulation of it it's kind of difficult because the due to the number of teams but i say this man there should be a there should be a tournament people are talking about in-season tournaments in the nba here's what i suggest there should be a tournament at the end of the season once the playoffs are set i think there should be a tournament for teams to play for the number one pick teams that should be playing for lottery positions i think that there should be a tournament concerning that because if you're going to have a, a playoff for the championship and the, and the prize being the championship in years where a Zion Williamson is going to be the number one pick, a year where a Tim Duncan is going to be a number one pick or an Anthony Davis is going to be a number one pick or LeBron James is going to be a number one pick. And a player that can really turn around your fortune, not just in the win-loss column, but also in a situation where it can turn around your franchise, raise the value of your franchise, bring the fan base back to your franchise, put more money in the pocket of the owners and the players for your franchise. So I think in terms of playing for an NBA championship, if you play for a lottery pick, a tournament that will play for a lottery pick, I think teams will be going just as hard. If you think Alvin Gentry wasn't dancing in the streets and dancing on the ceiling like Lionel Richie when the New Orleans Pelicans won the lottery to draft Zion Williamson, you're crazy. That might have saved Alvin Gentry's job or at least given him a little bit more time to see what he could do with that squad. So, yeah, Alvin Gentry getting that number one pick to draft Zion Williamson, yeah, that was a big deal. So if you have this tournament at the end of the season and the winner of the tournament gets the number one pick and the prize is going to be a player such as a Zion Williamson or maybe in a few years if he continues to live up to his hype and his potential in 2023 or 24, like an Imani Bates or someone like that, Hell yeah, teams are going to be trying their asses off to win that tournament to get that pick. And when you think about some of these other great players that we have in our league who were drafted number one, getting the number two or number three or number four pick where you have the opportunity to draft yourself a Trey Young or a Luka Dontage or someone like that. going back a little bit further, a Russell Westbrook, a James Harden, all of these great, great basketball players, a Dwayne Wade, a Chris Bosh, all of these great, great basketball players who have won championships, who've won MVPs, who have help their team grow and the fan base grow in their area who happen not to be number one draft picks. Hell yeah. Playing in this tournament for seedings for drafting players, I think would be a great idea. And I think that could be another way where you can knock the season down from 82 games to maybe 75, 70 games and it still wouldn't hurt that much. The revenue of the owners who would be losing that money because of lack of games, because you would still have the amount of games that could be played similar or close to it, because there would be no team, all the teams, or I should say, all the teams would have an opportunity to play as many games as possible. Teams that made the playoffs would be playing, while teams who didn't make the playoffs also would be playing. They would just be playing for different prizes. So. That would be my suggestion. I don't know how it'd be. It'd be like the best two of three in the first round and then maybe the championship series to see who could be playing for the number one pick. I mean, that could be maybe best three out of five or something like that. And I know what maybe the argument could be. Well, I mean, are you going to have then, what you're saying then, Wendell, is that the team with the with the worst, let's say, for instance, the Cleveland Cavaliers or the Golden State Warriors right now who have the worst record in the NBA. Well, you're really eliminating their chances of getting the number one pick because you're gonna, they're gonna be playing in a tournament against a team that's going to be much better than them. I mean how in the Western conference, you know and sometimes I mean, there could be scenarios down the road in the Western conference where a Western conference is going to be stacked in the team that's the ninth or the 10th place team in the Western Conference, they might have been they might have won 48 games. They might have won 45 games compared to a team in the Eastern Conference, who maybe only won 32 games. So basically you're giving the number one pick to a team that won 40 something games, because obviously they should be the favorite to win the championship because they are the best team. Shouldn't we be talking about giving the worst team in the league, the team that needs the most help in getting the number one pick? Shouldn't we then be able to have them get the number one pick? No, we already have a, a ping pong. We already have the lottery. Where that's kind of thrown out the window when they're trying to make it harder for teams to uh, to uh, get the number one pick with bad records. So, and there's also, as I mentioned before, when I mentioned names like Kawhi Leonard, when I mentioned names like Dwayne Wade, when I mentioned names like Jason Tatum, when I mentioned names like Jalen Brown, when I mentioned names like Paul George, when I mentioned names like Kevin Durant, when I mentioned name, names like Joel Embiid, Damian Lillard. All of those guys weren't number one picks. If you take a look at the best player that we have today, maybe outside of LeBron James, Giannis Adetokounmpo, that guy was number 13. That guy was the number 14 pick. The guy who won the championship last year and was the MVP, Kawhi Leonard, he was a guy who was drafted in the middle of the first round. So just because you get yourself the number one pick, yeah, when it's someone like a Zion, yeah, when it's someone like a LeBron, yeah, when it's someone like an Anthony Davis, sure, it would be nice. But just because you're drafting number one doesn't automatically mean you're gonna be drafting a player who is going to be guaranteed head and shoulders to turn your chances of losing basketball to winning basketball around, especially if you're with a poor organization. It takes more than just drafting the best player on that draft and then expecting him to turn turn things around. As Patrick Ewing, who was the number one pick in 85 out of Georgetown, went to the Knicks and was never given another all-star player to play with who went through bad coaches and bad teammates and had to fight Michael Jordan and such while Jordan had Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant and other role players like Bill Cartwright and at the end, Dennis Rodman and such to win championships. Patrick Ewing would never afforded the opportunity to play with a guy who made an all-star game. Don't give me John Starks. Don't give me Anthony Mason. Don't give me Charles Oakley. Don't give me Greg Anthony. Don't give me any of those guys. You know, don't give me Derek Harper. Don't give me Rolando Blackman. Don't give me Charles Smith. Patrick Ewing never had a legitimate star basketball player, all-star top 10, top 15 player to play with. So, just because you get the number one pick, and just because you get a generational talent, all-star, all-legend, everything, NBA potential type player, and, you know, that doesn't automatically mean that you're going to be winning championships. That automatically means, that doesn't mean that you're going to be having a dynasty. So, you know, the Cleveland Cavaliers, if you want the number one pick, then John Beeline and Kevin Love and Tristan Thompson and Jeez, now now Andre Drummond and Colin Saxon and those guys, you better get it together that you were playing in this tournament because you're going to have that opportunity. So we will see what happens moving forward. That would be my suggestion for what the NBA is going to be doing going forward. I just really hate this NBA. It's a myth, load management. It's a myth. It basically applies to Kawhi Leonard. That's basically it. And really, how many people are going to the arena to watch Kawhi Leonard? I've said this before, and I'll say this again. You take a look at the NBA All-Stars or the NBA All-NBA team from last season. Giannis, you know, that's Paul George, Nikola Jokic, James Harden, Steph Curry, right? They all made the first team. Giannis played 72 games, George played 77 games, Jokic played 80 games last season, Harden played 78 games last season, and Curry played 69 games, and he missed 11 games because of a strained left groin. He missed 11 games because of legit injury, so outside of that, he would have played 80 games. So, you're speaking about the NBA All-Second Team, Kevin Durant last season played 78 games, Kawhi Leonard played 60 games, Joel Embiid played 64 games, Lillard played 80, Kyrie Irving played 67. So please, there, there's not this huge wave of NBA superstars who are missing games because they want to take some time off. That That is a myth. There's only a certain amount of players who this even applies to as far as fans caring. It applies to maybe Giannis. It applies to LeBron. It applies to Luka. It applies to maybe a Steph Curry. Those types of superstars, no one gives a damn about if... Uh, let me throw out a name here. No one really gives a damn if Demetrius Sabonis doesn't play a game for the Indiana Pacers because he wants to take some time off to rest. Maybe the gamblers, maybe the bettors, maybe the season ticket holders for Indiana might give a damn. But in the big, in the bigger picture, and that's what the NBA is focusing on with load management, they're not really sitting there talking about, oh, we really have to do something with load management because we're really concerned about season ticket holders. That, that, that's not their number one priority. That's not their number one concern. Their concern is about, The television revenue that might be jeopardized because TV, because TV executives are getting salty by this myth. So TV, TV executives say, look, as long as you can have LeBron James and Luka Doncic and Giannis and these guys, along with these guys, along with these superstars, along with these known athletic figures for sports fans, as long as they show up on our TV screen, I don't give a damn if they don't play any other time. I don't give a damn as far as the local market is concerned. I don't give a damn about any of that stuff. And unfortunately, I think the NBA feels the same way. In terms of we care more about the national market than we do the local market. And again, it's all a myth. If this was a <coughs> league life league wide phenomenon, I think maybe the argument or maybe the concern would be would be uh, would be greater. But I, I just don't see it. I don't see it at all. I mean, Kawhi Leonard has a bad knee. Kawhi Leonard is two years removed from playing only nine games because of a bad knee. That's that's the way it goes. Kawhi Leonard is Yeah, the Kawhi Leonard's time needs to be managed. So I I I would love to see Kawhi Leonard play eighty two games. But I'm quite sure if you're a LA Clipper fan, you would also love for him to win a championship for you. And it's nice for them to play eighty two games, but if he runs out of gas in the playoffs and they lose, what good is that gonna do for you? So that's the argument that the Houston Rockets have been putting on with James Harden, right? James Harden is a motherfucker when it comes to the regular season. And then in game sevens or in games that mean something, he disappears for a quarter or a half at a time. And they all go, well, he played a lot of games this year. Golden State went for the NBA record for most wins in the season. And people forget the fact that Draymond Green got suspended for a couple of games in the NBA playoffs when Golden State was leading Cleveland 3-1. to Everybody was talking about, well, they shouldn't have gone for... 73 wins because it left them with nothing for the NBA championship. Kind of surprising, again, the fact that they would find a way to run out of gas after winning 73 games after game four of the NBA championship round in which Draymond Green was suspended for getting into it with LeBron James. But that's neither here nor there. So I've always said that when you talk about the NBA load management, that's a myth. That is a myth. And I just love this tournament, man. I love this tournament. I'm thinking about I'm looking at it this year, like if the season were to end right now, you're speaking about Memphis, you're speaking about Portland and Phoenix and Detroit, New Orleans, Chicago. So you would get more of John Murray. You would get more of Damian Lillard. You would get more of Devin Booker. You would get more of Zion Williamson. You would get more of Zach Levine, anyone cares. You would get more of Bradley Beal. Okay, whatever. You would get more of Carl Anthony Towns. Well basically what I'm saying is that you would still have these teams vying for something and playing for something. So, you could be watching the NBA playoffs on Monday, Wednesdays, Fridays, and Sundays, and you could be watching these games, the tournament, to see who the number one pick is on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, Well, not Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, so there you go, there you go, I had to get that in there, you know, just lay it out for me, I'm going to sing it. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, love. So, yeah, man. So, that's going on with the uh, with the NBA. Time for me now to now talk about my Georgetown Yo Hoyas. But before we talk about one of my favorite Georgetown Hoyas squads in a while, give me the music. When I call your name, girl, it starts to flame. Burning in my heart, tearing it all apart. No matter how I try, my love, I can't hide. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host Wendell Wallace. so glad that you could be with us, a lot of things going on in the world of sports, woo, man, before I get to my Georgetown I am, I, I don't know, this has been going on now for about a month, no, about six weeks, I'll give it six weeks, if you're listening to the rejoining music, it's Sugar by Honey Bunch, the instrumental for the Four Tops, the Funk Brothers, bringing it down, I have, I tell you, man, for the last six weeks, I have just been just all in on everything concerning the Four Tops. Really. I, I just, the I don't know. I've listened to the Four Tops a lot. You know, my parents listened to the Four Tops. I was introduced to the Four Tops. I remember Motown 25 where they had the battle between the Tops and the Temptations and Sugar Pie Honey Bunch and Baby I Need Your Lovin' and, and you know, all those, all those songs. You know what I mean? Baby, I need your lovin', got to have all your lovin'. Sugar, pie, honey, but you know, I'll be there. Love and comfort you. Introduced to that song when I watched Cooley High, but you know, um, standing in the shadows of love, Bernadette, all of them great songs, right? So I've, I've known of The Temptations. I've enjoyed The Temptations, but I don't know what it is, man. For one day, I was listening to The Temptations just randomly, and I was listening to Levi Stubbs, and I just said, damn. I just got to get more involved with The Temptations in terms of learning about them. And so I have just been down on everything with The Temptations. I don't think there's been a YouTube clip out there that's four-top related that I haven't watched in the last five to six weeks. I believe in you and me. There's a one-love song. I believe in you and me that's sung by Levi Stubbs. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. That man. I, unbelievable. Absolutely Unbelievable. You will always be the one for me. Oh, yes, you are. I mean, it, it, the, the voice. The guy, well, he, he passed away like 12 years ago, but guy is unbelievable. And that is MacArthur Park. MacArthur Park is melting in the dark. All the sweet green icing flowing down. Someone left a cake out in the rain. I don't think that I should take it. Cause it took so long to bake it and I'll never have that recipe again. No, no. Sorry. But basically what I'm saying is I listened to Richard Harris's version of it. And then I listened to the four tops version of it. I was introduced in my just going on and on and on and on about trying to listen to anything the four tops put down. So I heard MacArthur Park, brilliant. I was like, who made this song? Who sang this song first? Richard Harris listen to his version then listen to levi's version no comparison no comparison the song is dope the song is great love the song kind of weird kind of funky kind of kind of clinky if i could use that word if there's a word called clinky it's just kind of odd Start some of the lyrics but uh levi stubbs man what a voice what a voice what a voice when she was my girl there was laughter and loving in her arms when she was my girl and anything. Gone, 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 gone. She used to be everything to me when she was my girl. Mm-hmm. She was my girl. Yeah. So I just, all right, enough, enough of the singing. Enough of the singing. I just, you know, I just want to let you know about my four tops obsession right now. Sam cook, you know, just Reading. or on vacation. nor normally occupy my musical obs- obsession space. As far as singers and who they were, people, Otis and Sam in heaven, spoke to me in a dream, said, Wendell, give me a break, will you? Give us a break. You know, here, Levi, come here for a second. Here, Levi, Obi, uh, Lawrence, come over here. Hey, d- you know, dwell on them for a little bit. Give us a break. You know, talk about them. Research them. Talk about them on your podcast. Enough. Give give me and Sam a break. And I said, okay, Otis, I'll do it. I'll do it and uh yeah man the four tops and levi Stubbs. i mean just the story itself again i don't see how nobody made a made a film about this these guys were together for 44 years man these guys were together as a group for 44 years the temptations went through like 14 different members the only two people who stood the test of time was Otis Wilson and Otis Wilson and the baritone guy. Boom, 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 dum boom, boom, the, 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 the bass guy, whose name escapes me right now. But, man, the temptations went through David Ruffin and Eddie Kendrick and Paul Williams and, and Dennis Lawrence and all of these guys, man. But the four tops, man, they just stayed the same. Abdul Fakir, uh, Levi Stubbs, Obi Benson, Lawrence Payton. Forty-four years until Peyton died in nineteen ninety-seven, and then they were just the tops. Their loyalty to each other closer than brothers. I don't know how. I don't know why that shouldn't be made into a movie. I mean, did you did VH1 did the movie with the four tops right? And that thing lasted like eighteen hours on VH1. You couldn't do something about the Temptation. Oh, you sorry. They did the uh, VH1 did something about the Temptations that lasted four hours. So up there criticizing David Ruffin and doing all that kind of stuff with Leon at the lead. For David Ruffin so you did all that stuff on the Temptations. you couldn't put together something for the four tops What they would I mean their loyalty to each other their love their brotherhood that they have for each other Come on spike once you finish doing Jackie Robinson getting that movie made go ahead and do something on the four tops Man or do something as far as something close to that man, don't give me no five heartbeats either I'm talking about something dealing with the tops man because that is just an unbelievable story All right windows world of sports Yes, in sports, let me get back to this. The Georgetown Tamaholian basketball squad love those guys, man. Absolutely loves those guys. I understand that their current record is 14-10. I get that. I understand that they're 4-7 and seven in the Big East. I understand that. I understand that, for the most part, they're not going to make the NCAA tournament. I know that. They have to go a bare minimum of 8-10 and 10 to even get a sniff of consideration of making the tournament. And if you take a look at their remaining schedule on Saturday, they're at Butler, Providence, at the Paul. At Marquette, Xavier, at Creighton, Villanova. So I'm being realistic. I'm taking a look at the best-case scenario. They beat Providence. They beat the DePaul. They beat Xavier. And then they lose to Butler and Marquette and Creighton and Villanova. They finish the season 17 of 14. I don't think that gets you in a tournament. I don't think that deserves to get you into the tournament. Worst-case scenario, realistic scenario, especially if Jerk 7 and McClung don't come back. They lose all the games and finish 17 and 14 or 14 and 17. I want to say 14 and 18, because they'll lose the play-in game for the Big East Tournament. But I don't care, man. Whether they make the tournament, no matter. I don't care what happens. Whether they make the tournament or they lose the rest of their games, this has been an absolutely enjoyable team to watch. I would have liked the season to go a little bit better, don't get me wrong, but for what those guys have been doing, the heart that they've shown, the togetherness that they've shown, the willingness to play for their coach. That they've shown, I, I, I've i loved this team. This is one of my favorite Georgetown Holyoke basketball teams. I put them right up there with the 19, of course, the 1983-84 team, the 1984-85 team, Reggie Williams and the Miracles, 1986 and 1987, the team with Otto Porter as a uh, sophomore, What was he, a sophomore that year, where he led Georgetown, and, of course, they lost to uh, Gulf Coast. But that was one of the better teams that I enjoyed. There's been a lot of Georgetown teams I really enjoyed it. This one is right up there with them because there's no there, Let's take for instance the week that they had last week playing st. John the Paul And Seton Hall no way they should have gone. They should have gone two and one. No way. No way Uh uh-uh. I guess St. John they played without Matt McClung. He's out with a foot injury We don't know if he's gonna be playing on Saturday So the first part of the game I was watching it made my eyes bleed Two really bad teams setting basketball back 40 years It was bad. Georgetown missed their first eight shots, fell behind only seven to two. The reason why they wasn't even worse, because they were playing St. John's. First half, Georgetown was shooting 29%, two for 14 from the three-point line, with 16.08 left to go. After missing four of the first five shots to open up the second half, they were down 50 to 33. I said, that's it. I'm done. Let me see what the Houston Rockets are doing over. Let me see what the Houston Rockets and New Orleans Pelicans are doing over on ABC, because this is garbage. This is a joke, but I said, no, 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 no. I said, no, let me just stick it out. I'm down with Georgetown. I'm down with Patrick Ewing. I'm down with my team. I'm there through thick and thin. Let me just see. Let me just, plus I got to do a podcast on them. So let me see where I'm going to go with this. And then slowly but surely, they came all the way back. And they came all the way back. And I didn't let myself go there. I was like, I'm not letting myself go there. I'm getting excited. I'm getting like, yeah, but I'm not going to let myself go there just yet. It is not until they came back and got within two point sixty-four sixty-two, thanks to the play of Yurt Seven and Blair and the leadership of Mosley and, J- and um, Terrell Allen, that I said to myself, oh, shit, we got a chance. We got a chance. We got a chance to sleep with this fucking game. And they came back and won seventy-three, 72 I'm sorry, without question, one of the top five victories for Patrick Ewing going into now his third season. There was the Villanova game last year in which they won. There was the Syracuse game this season that they won. There was the Marquette game on the road last season that they won. That was awesome. There was the Texas game this year that they won at Madison Square Garden. They played Duke very well at Madison Square Garden. But this one was right up there in the Patrick Ewing year in terms of just guys not quitting, guys not pouting, guys still having belief, guys still believing in their coach, the coach still believing in their players. And yes, I understand St. John sucks. I understand all of those things. And yes, after being down to DePaul to come back and win, despite the fact with 11 minutes left to go in the, in the second half, Yurt 7 went down with an ankle injury, a twisted ankle. We don't know how he's doing. We don't know if he's going to be able to play against Butler. So if McClung and Yurt 7 aren't playing against Butler on Saturday, I have no idea how Georgetown's going to score 35 points. I really don't. I have no idea. Because now you're start talking about going with Chudis Wahab at the center, He's been foul prone when he gets extended minutes, and then that comes to the bench with Timothy Ogafe, the freshman who's barely gotten any playing time at the center. I don't know how he's going to do. I don't know how... What what the hell's going to happen? I mean, you might have to be playing George Muris on the walk-on. No, not the one who played for the Wizards, his son. He might have to be playing big minutes at five on worst-case scenario against Butler on the road, nationally ranked, if Georgetown doesn't have Yurt Seven and McClung playing. And even if McClung is playing. Without Yurt 7, I don't know what the hell they're going to do. I have no idea what they're going to do. But, man, that game against DePaul, they were down, came back and won. Seton Hall. That game against Seton Hall. Now, remember, Seton Hall was number 12 ranked at the time. They were leading the Big East at the time. They were playing without McClung again. They fell behind 14-0, 16-2 to start the game. They started the game by shooting 5-24 from the field. were only behind by 10 at the halftime. And in the second half, they never trailed by nine, and they came within, they never trailed by more than nine, and they got within four a couple of times before Seton Hall finally said, fuck this, get the ball to Miles Powell and let him do his thing. I swear, man, no player, when you're speaking about Miles Powell, no player has ever destroyed Georgetown in the school's history like this guy. Not Chris Mullen, not Pearl Washington, not the McLean brothers, not Ed Pinckney. Shit. <laughs> Not any of those guys, man. I am so happy. Miles Pyle, go to the NBA. Get the fuck out of my life because you have given me nightmares. That's the one guy who, through all the years I've watched Georgetown play, I've never seen a player who's played against Georgetown get a shot whenever he wanted to, get a good shot whenever he wanted to, score whenever he wanted to. It's just, and there's absolutely nothing Georgetown can do about it. There's no zone, there's no man, there's no press, there's no junk defense, gimmick defense, there's nothing. There's nothing Jamarco Pickett can do, there's nothing Jagan Mosley can do, there's nothing Terrell Allen can do, there's definitely nothing Matt McClung can do to stop Miles Powell. And he just kills us, kills us, kills us, kills us, kills us. The man scored 18 of the team's first 32 points. Finished the half with 31 uh, finished the half with 21 points and he was just clicking and there was absolutely nothing we could do to stop him So when miles Powell finally graduates man, I will be outside of his probably his family I will be the happiest guy in the world The fact that miles Powell is going to graduate and get the hell out of Seton Hall so he doesn't have to torch Georgetown time and time again, but again, I am completely I am just completely in love with this basketball team again the way they play Javon Blair scored 30 points, averaging 24 points a game over the time when McClung has been out. The key player in their victories against against, um, St. John's and DePaul. And look, yeah, DePaul and St. John's, they're bottom feeders. I get it. I understand it. I know we're not beating Villanova, and I know that we're not beating Seton Hall or whatever. But you try to tell me with the team that we have right now that we should be beating Seton Hall, we should be beating DePaul, we should be beating... St. John's, especially St. John's being down 17 in the second half, especially get the Paul without our best, two best players on the team being depleted like we are. You try to tell me that's coaching, my man. I'm sorry. Patrick Ewing can coach. i coach. Patrick Ewing can coach. God, now if we can get this kid Moncrief from Canada. Oh man, I wish we, I hope we can get this guy. Oh You know, Terrence Williams turned us down. Okay, you go ahead and play at Michigan. We're going to get someone who's even a better player than you are. That's fine. That's fine. So let's cross our fingers. All right. I am done. I am out of here. I'd like to thank you for listening to the podcast, Wendell's World in Sports, with your host, Wendell Wallace. Be good to each other. Be good to yourself. Be good to your fellow man. Be good to your fellow woman. Be good to everybody. Be good to whoever you come across, man. You know, just show them love. Show them that you care. Show them that you're down with them. Let's make let's see what we can do to make this place a better place to be living in. It's a challenging it's a challenging notion, I know, especially with the piece of shit that we have in the White House right now. It's very challenging, very difficult right now. But um, there will be sunshine on this cloudy day very very soon. So thank you very much for listening. Wendell's World in Sports. Wendell Wallace. Music.